with you. Uh, Go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Esther chapter 6. That's where we are this morning. We're we're turning, uh, we're hitting the turn. That's what we're doing in the book of Esther. We're kind of reaching the midway point. Some people call it the pivot point of the story because it's at this juncture here in Esther 6, this sort of crossroads in the story that we begin to see really some, some resolution to all there's some resolution coming to all the questions that have been developed so far. And we're just going to jump in here this morning. So Esther 6 in the Old Testament. Um, stand with me, if you will, as we look to, together to God and His Word to us this morning. <clears throat> this is Esther chapter 6, starting in verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for this place to gather. Thank you for the freedom with which we are able to do that. Lord, I pray that you would help us, as easy as it is just to be here, help us to to really be present. I'm praying that for my heart and for the hearts of your people, Lord, that we could be here with you um, undistracted, unbothered by, by the things to come, even for the rest of this day. Lord, help us to just be present now. Clear our minds that we might be with you. Help us to hear your voice. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last uh, few weeks, if you haven't been with us, over the last few weeks, we've been In this book of Esther, we've been watching this story of Esther play out. We've come across some really, like, and I think we do need to be honest about this. One of the things we try to do here is be honest about what the Bible is saying. So I want to be honest here. It's been some really heavy, Esther's not for the faint of heart. it's, It's got some heavy, weighty, almost oppressive stuff that we've been working through. We've seen We've seen a world and been invited into a world that, it, like, I don't know, I can't help but think that it has, like, all of the, all the characters from a classic Disney princess story, right? There, I mean, and, and maybe, maybe that's just how I grew up, being, that was basically all we watched growing up was Disney princess movies, I had two sisters, whatever, you got to deal with that. Anyway, there's a king, right? You've got the king, you've got... Uh, like there's an antagonist, right? There's a there's a there's a guy, Haman. He really reminds us of, of like the classic villain. You can almost see him like kind of twisting his little mustache. I don't know if he had a mustache or not, but it feels like he probably did, and not like a cool one, like kind of a creepy one. Um, he's just got that. He's all like a Bond villain almost vibe about him. Uh, you can almost hear him singing his villain song back in chapter five. Do you remember? Remember, like everybody's got their, and so I, I don't know why, but this week this one sprung into mind, and so you just forgive me because there's no excuse for what I'm about to say, but like, like no one's slick as Haman, no one's quick as Haman, no one's necks as incredibly thick as Haman. You can like 
He's like Gaston, man. That's who he is, right? Don't you feel that with this guy? I mean, he's just so obnoxious. And he's the bad guy. There's no question. He's un He's, he's unabashedly the bad guy of the story. And then there's this young girl, right? I mean, all the drama is there, right? Her, her, she's our hero. Her name is on the cover of the, of the movie. And she's sort of coming of age and becoming a queen. And, and in all of that, not, I mean, it's not just like that's enough in and of itself, but in all of that, the stakes have been incredibly high. Like we've, we've seen queens literally just sort of cast aside. Like people who are just like, now you don't exist anymore. We've seen human trafficking, y'all, on a scale that's hard to fathom even on, even on a Super Bowl Sunday. This is, the, this is the human trafficking super holiday of the year, right? Even, even with that happening today, it's hard to even believe that they took all the young pretty women from all over the entire empire and brought them there. We've seen plans and promises of genocide. I mean, we've seen them plotting to, we've even seen them plotting to kill the kindly little cousin, right, who's been taking care of the girl. So the stakes have been high and the drama has been real, but it's not, here's the thing though, it's not just a sad story. And maybe this has happened to you before. Our, our family loves to watch movies together. That's one of our things. But when you're spread out, our, we, didn't, we really didn't plan out the ages of our kids super well. We go from 9 to 29, and so that's a pretty big window. And, and, and so it's hard. It takes more than a little effort for us to find a movie that will appeal to everyone in the room. And this happened just the other night. It, it, it's, it, it happened to us where we're what we're seeing here in Esther 6, right? We're, we're in this story. We're caught up in the drama of it all. It's serious and it's getting more serious. It's like really, really heavy. And, and then chapter 6 come, comes along and maybe for the first time, I don't know if you've realized this, but maybe the, for the first time we realize that, oh, this is a comedy. That's what we're seeing here. Right here, at the turn, right here at this sort of pivot point of the story, what we see is that God, the God who has created all things, just like what we talked about with the kids, who's created all things of nothing in a span of six days, and all very good, that that God has a sense of humor. And there are three ways we're going to see that sense of humor on display. And I think you could argue that the screenwriters of today are still borrowing uh, from this. But what we see here is we see the humor of God in the sleepless nights, we see it in the serendipitous coincidences, and we see it in the swapping places. Those are the three. Sleepless nights, serendipitous coincidences. I knew better than to use that word. I can't say that word. Serendipitous coincidences and swapping places. So look back at verse 1 with me. This is such a potentially inconsequential verse in the Bible. It's easy to just sort of glide right over the top of it if we aren't careful without even feeling uh, anything at all. But look at verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, On that night the king could not sleep. So that's the same night as Haman and his people are building a gallows to hang Mordecai on 75 feet, 50 cubits. They're going to put him up as a display for what happens when you go against the mighty Haman. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before 
the king. No, you know, sometimes things get a little lost in translation. When you're going from Hebrew to English, you can expect that to happen. It's easy to know the words that are being said without really understanding uh, what's being said. And that sort of happens here in verse 1. And if you've ever had a night where you couldn't sleep, you'll understand this. But a better translation of verse 1 would be, on that night, sleep fled from him. That's an actual better translation. I'm not knocking the ESV. They've never asked my opinion about how they should translate a verse, but that is a more accurate, more literal translation. On that night, sleep escaped the king. You probably know this feeling, right? It's not that the king doesn't want to sleep. He's not, he's not throwing another all-night banquet for everybody in the city. He's not having a party. Okay, he is tired. He's worn out. He wants to sleep. He needs to sleep, but he can't. And the more he tries, do you know this feeling? Like, you know this feeling, right? The more you try to sleep, the more and more awake you become. And so here's the comedy. It's this image of the king, right? He's got on his royal pajamas. He's in his little Persian sleep number bed, right? He's tried all the settings. Everything is right. Conditions are optimal for sleep. And we see him sitting there with one of his boys reading the most boring thing that he could think of. And that's when it all goes wrong. By the way, the boring book that they're reading is his life story. So that tells you a little something about our king, right? That's when it all goes wrong. It was found, here's what it says, it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, <coughs> two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. We saw that back in chapter 2. And so now, now his plan has backfired and this really is a sleepless night. And underneath all this, in the background of it all, an idea that we keep coming back to is just this reality that God is at work. And I know that's simplistic. I know that's not like mind-blowing. Man, make a bumper sticker out of that. But for real, God is at work. We've talked about that in Esther a lot, this idea of the presence of God in the absence of God. And the idea that Ahasuerus is chasing asleep that he cannot catch, it makes it clear that the reason he can't sleep is because God is keeping sleep from him. And so there's a purpose behind what's happening in the present, that God has a meaning and a reason for even something, even something as small, even something as basic and rudimentary as sleep. And so here it is. I want you to know this. Again, I don't know this will be profound. I don't know, probably nobody's quoting me on Twitter later when I say this, but here it is. God loves to meet us in the mundane. He loves to meet us in the boring. It's not just that he's, just, it's not just he's there, but that he's active in those, sort of pro, in those sort of prosaic times of life, that he's just, and he's just as present in the boring and rudimentary and ordinary moments as he is in the more interesting and extraordinary moments. Like that's what this sleepless night, even just this sleepless night reminds us, is that in this age, here's, you know what our age is? Our age is the age of loud, famous, and fast. That's the, that's the, that is the ethos of our day. Everything needs to be large, it needs to be famous, it needs to be fast. That's how one writer has described it. That's how we tend to function. That's the type of stuff that gets us excited 
That's what's desirable. It's got to be big, it's got to be well-known, and it's got to be explosive. But that's not, here's the thing, that's not really the way that God tends to work. And so in response to the large, famous, and fast culture, what God in Scripture, and, and I think we see this on this night here in Esther 6, what God shows us is that almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with Him. That's an ethos that we've tried to adopt as a church, too. That we want to be a people who plod along with Christ, running when He calls us to run, slowing down when He calls us to slow down, but not chasing the next big thing. And when we learn that, and we walk in the light of it, that everything doesn't have to be big, that everything doesn't have to be loud, that everything doesn't have to be famous. When we walk in that, it gives us a new perspective. Here's what it does. It liberates us from the bondage of that to see, to see the ordinary moments in a new light. It gives us a new perspective on what otherwise might be just another sleepless night. And it continues. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Nothing has been done for Mordecai, that is completely unacceptable within the Persian culture. And here's verse 4. <coughs> here's what it says. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering. Here's what it says. Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Verse 6 says, Haman entered, and the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself. <laughs> I love this. Man, you just got to love Haman. Haman thought to himself, Who is it the king would want to honor more than me? And Haman told the king, For the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn, and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and call out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. I love this scene. I do, man, I, I love it because from our vantage point, knowing what we knew, seeing it from, from, from more than just one angle, we know more than the characters in the story actually know themselves. Now, now we don't know everything, but in a bit of, of, of like dramatic irony, we know more than they do. And so we recognize that there's more happening here than just another chance encounter at the palace. Haman has strategically come into that place. He got there early, like Esther in the chapter before, in the previous chapter, right? He has intentionally acted. This is a tactical plan of Haman in his mind. He is still pulling the strings, right? He, so he's standing outside in the inner court. He's being strategic in that. He's not just barging in. You don't do that to the king. He's standing outside. And we know what his plan is. He's there. It says it explicitly. He's there to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. And so from his perspective and from the perspective of the king, this is a beautifully serendipitous 
coincidence. For each of them, each of these two main characters, man, it's just a chance encounter that both of them think is surely going to work out for their own benefit. The king needs someone to raise up and honor Mordecai. And here's Haman. Haman needs the king to raise up and hang Mordecai from the gallows. And the king is effectively calling him into his office. They are both in just the right place at just the right time. It's this perfect timing. Like it's poetic, right? Isn't it? Like there's a, it's poetic how this is happening, what we're seeing here, all these moving parts and all these pieces coming together. It's perfect timing. But listen, perfect timing, perfect timing is a statement of providence. Perfect timing, if you ever use that phrase, ever hear that phrase, perfect timing is a theological statement. It's a statement of providence because it assumes, here's what it assumes, perfect timing assumes that there is an outcome that is meant to happen. This reminds me of a story I heard years ago about a guy called, uh, it called Michael Riley. He, he was a basketball player for the University of Alabama. Uh, he had gone to a couple other schools on the way to there, to, the, to that school, and, and he's there in 2008. It was a Friday, uh, March 14th, during the SEC men's basketball tournament over in Atlanta. And in that day, they are, they, are, they are playing against Mississippi State. They are down three, two seconds left on the clock, and Riley catches the ball, turns, fades, shoots a three, ties up the game with no time remaining, and they go to overtime. That's sort of the definition of March Madness right there, right? Like we know this, these things happen. But on this day, with thousands, about 16,000 people crowded into the Georgia Dome for the game, this wasn't, this, was, this wasn't just an ordinary shot. See, the people didn't know it, the people in the stands didn't know it, but that shot would eventually become known as the shot that saved lives. You see, on that same day, at the same moment, as he's making that shot, at the very same moment, there is a massive EF2 tornado ripping its way through the city of Atlanta. And instead of, here's what happened, instead of spilling thousands of people out into the streets of the city, out into the path of the storm, out into harm's way, they were caught up in the moment of the game. Nobody left before halftime started. They were still in their seats. The author of Sports Illustrated, writing about this event, he traces the history of Michael Riley from his childhood. All the losses. He lost his grandmother in a very violent, uh, very violent neighborhood that they lived in. Pushed him to just go and shoot basketball every day, every day, every day. That's all he wanted to do. And it traces it through all those practices, all those moments, all those little insignificant moments, all the way to that moment, making that shot. And here's what he said. This is, the, this is not... This isn't your favorite theologian. This isn't your pastor. This is a quote from the writer of Sports Illustrated. He says this. He says, Each life turns on a trillion silent hinges, and every act has an infinite series of prerequisites. For Michael Riley to be where he was and do what he did, an incalculable number of things had to happen just so. Just so, I don't know that the writer for Sports Illustrated knew he was a Calvinist, and yet, here we are. What some might call chance or luck. I remember as a kid growing up, man, you, Presbyterian kid, you were not allowed to say there was luck. That was, I didn't know a whole lot, but that was one rule that I knew. That was, it was never luck. 
what you might call chance or luck, what we might call good fortune, or even, or even like here's the new version of that, it's hard work and dedication. That's the phrase that's replaced it. What you might call that, we call providence. You see, around everything that happens, both in Esther and in life, is a sort of rumor of God at work. And in Esther 6, the irony sort of continues to build on itself. Remember, the delay in honoring Mordecai, that oversight that he read about in the Chronicles, it's from a little over four years ago. Four years have passed since that day. Four years. That's something to remember when we think about God's timing. You see, the Lord has His timing. The Lord has His plan. God has His purposes. And in the Lord's perfect timing, and what they only saw as some serendipitous circumstances, the shot goes through the net, the crowd stays in the arena, and Haman has stepped right into a trap that he didn't know, that he didn't even know was there. There's more to it than just timing on that day, too. I want you to see there's more to it than just God's timing. Just look at the way that, king, that the king and Haman talked to one another. All the common pleasantries of the Persian culture have been, of the Persian court, they've been pushed aside. Because at this point, these guys, they've become more than colleagues. Like at this point, Haman and Ahasuerus, Haman and Xerxes, same king, they're friends. They're boys, right? And the beautiful twist in the story is that it's precisely because of this familiarity with one another that Haman, his guard completely down, gives a completely honest response. Look at there in verse 7. Here's what the king asks. He says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Here's the chance, right? I mean, Haman's been waiting for it. He's been invited to the parties. The queen's invited him to the banquet. Like, he, he is, he's, he's going for this. Here's the chance. And so Haman shoots his shot. He shows us everything he wants. In this one little moment, in this one verse, Haman gives us everything about his true motivation. He wants the royal robes. He wants the royal horse. Not just a regular horse. He wants a horse with a crown on it. Now, I don't know how they did that. Okay, but they strapped a crown onto the horse's head, and I guess the horse was down with that, whatever. He wants the royal parade. He wants the royal announcement. Like, it's not enough to have all the stuff. He wants everyone, he, it's not just enough for him to have it. He wants everybody to know that he has it. It's like in his mind, it's finally his yes day. You know what I mean? It's his yes day. He's like, you know, he, he, he's like that crazy girl from High School Musical, man. He wants it all. You can tell what we watched growing up, man. My poor daughter had to watch a lot of High School Musical. My wife cried during the third one. I'm sorry, that's just how we were as a family. He wants it all. And the beauty of this type of narcissism is the only time I'm ever going to compliment narcissism. The beauty of this type of narcissism, at least in this moment, is the king gets an honest answer to his question. You see, Haman holds nothing back. He is completely unfiltered. He can't imagine the king is talking about anyone other than himself because he's the man. And if you don't believe it, just ask him. He'll tell you. He'll sing it to you. He's that type of guy. And he said to himself, literally the way that, literally said in his heart, what should be done before he ever said it to the king? And the comedy of it all, again, God is kind of laughing. God has this sense of humor and a plot twist that our boy never saw coming. It's not for him, it's for Mordecai. It's not for him, it's for his nemesis. 
And now we're swapping places. Here's verse 10. Look at that. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything that you have suggested. And so Haman took the garment and the horse. Haman himself has to go and do this. Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai is wearing sackcloth and ashes. He's in, he's in that type of frame of mind. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Look at 12. Then Mordecai, I love Mordecai, man. Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He's like, I got a job to do, man. I don't have time for all these parades. He returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. It's hard to know. Like, can we just confess this? It is hard to know what to do when it feels like God is absent. Can we be honest enough with one another to admit that there are those moments where it just doesn't feel like God's at work around us? And so nobody's going to run you out of the room. We're not going to like put a boot on your car and not let you leave. Like, it's okay to be honest that there are those times where it just doesn't feel like God's actually at work. It doesn't feel like he's active, like he's dropped the ball. Mate, we have those moments. Sometimes we, we have those seasons when it just feels like, like, he, like if he exists, he's, it's somewhere else because he's not here. He is not here at work in this. And we're just sort of drifting. And his timing doesn't make any sense. You know, Peter talks about that. The Apostle Peter talks about that in his second letter. He looks at God. He, and you can imagine Peter having this sort of tension in his life between pure praise and pure frustration all the time, kind of caught in the balance of that. But he looks at God as the creator of all things. That's the lens. We need to know that. that's the lens through which he looks and sees God. And he says this, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He's going, he's going, here's what he's doing. He's saying, listen, listen, don't forget that God, God isn't on our clock. He isn't compelled by our schedule. He's the sovereign one. And that can be a difficult thing. That can be a really difficult thing for us to remember, especially in the mess. And so put yourself in Mordecai's shoes for just a second, right? With everything going on around him. He's got a bounty on his head. There's a bounty on his entire people. He might have been, I mean, I hate to say he definitely would have been because I didn't, I'm, obviously I'm not there, I don't know him, but I'm telling you how I would have felt. I would have felt, and I think Mordecai probably is, is very similar. It would have been very easy for him to be tempted to think that not only had Ahasuerus forgotten him for the last four years, but even God had forgotten him. And so Peter, maybe, maybe Peter's considering the story of Esther. Maybe he's considering the story of Joseph. 
Maybe he's considering the, the, the story of Israel as a people, as a, as a whole people. And even maybe Peter's thinking of his own context, his own story. And he reminds us, here's what he does. He anchors us to this truth. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, the Lord has his timing. The Lord has his plan. God has his purpose, and we see that in Christ, don't we? We see that in the person and work of Jesus. And remember, Jesus didn't come with a big flash. He didn't. I mean, there was a flash in the sky that a few wise men from the east noticed, but everybody else was kind of dumb to it, right? He wasn't born into fame or fortune. Jesus came in meekness, and he came in humility. Some of us are looking for the next big miracle, but maybe we'd be better served to pause a little more often, consider a little more often, take inventory a little more often of the small ways, right? The ordinary ways that the Lord has been at work in our daily lives. One of the things that continues to strike me about the life of Christ, especially as I walk through the Gospels, is just how often Jesus paused to pray. And when we see him at the cross, obedient to the point of death, right, even death on a cross, we're seeing a picture of God's love expressed. And along with that, you've heard that, but along with that, there's something else we see. We're seeing the Lord swapping places with us, right? He takes our place. He takes the place of dishonor that we might be brought to the place of honor with God, it's Jesus who knew no sin, becoming sin, genuinely trading places with us. God loves the irony. He does. He's got a sense of humor. It's Jesus who knew no sin, becoming sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's one of the most one-sided exchanges in history. He takes our sin, we get His holiness. He takes our mess, we get His righteousness. And Paul says that it's because of this. Here's what Paul says. Therefore God has highly exalted him. This is talking about Jesus. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's who we worship. And that's, that's who we remember. My prayer for us this week has been that we would lose the ability to forget that. As I think about that story from the Georgia Dome back in 2008, I imagine those 16,000 fans, I don't know, I don't know how Alabama fans were there or not. I don't know if Alabama travels well for basketball or not. It's usually all Kentucky fans at that tournament. But I imagine that shot going in and people erupting in applause. You know? You ever been in that situation? There's a great catch, a shot goes in, and everybody just explodes in applause. I wonder how many of them paused and erupted into an eruption of applause when they realized that that shot was in a divine way the salvation of their lives. How many of those small moments in our lives has God used to preserve us, to accomplish His will, to accomplish His purpose in our lives? My prayer for this church, really for the whole church, is that we'd be a people of thunderous applause to the glory of our King. That we wouldn't settle for being silent. We wouldn't settle for being being dazzled by the football player or the basketball player, the gymnastics kid or whatever, that we would see our king and that we'd lose the ability to forget his greatness.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and mercy to us, something that I confess I take for granted too often. It's so easy for me to drift through, to go through the motions, to get in my car and drive. There's no risk involved. And so we just kind of go through these motions, but Lord, you show us that you're there even in the motions. You're there in the mundane drive to the church building on a Sunday morning. You're there as we sit at lunch with friends and neighbors, brothers and sisters in faith. You are there as we go into our workplaces and you are working all things according to the counsel of your own will for our good and for your glory. God, give us a bigger vision of the life that you've entrusted to us. Help us not to waste it. Help us to see you at work in the mundane. Help us to see you at work in the ordinary. And Lord, for your glory, may we become a people of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.